chapter 2 of John, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. His disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember a moment like that about two years ago, so think of it, we're not hills dwellers, we were ignorant plains dwellers and didn't know of the glory. So we were running hard, Narelle and I were running hard on the lead up to Christmas and we took an afternoon off and we headed up, of course, to the hills for a drive and you know, you know what it's like living here. We came across the Handoff Hill Winery and... Um, It was a beautiful and a crisp, clear afternoon. We parked our car and, of course, we wandered in. And the setting took our breath away. The tasting room, of course, built on this hill, overlooking the vines and the eucalypts and the rolling hills. And we were invited to come in and have a look around. Upstairs was a banquet room, the sort of place you'd love to have a dinner banquet or a wedding celebration. And on the walls were this visual feast covered with large, magnificent paintings by an Adelaide artist um, of fruits and berries and grapes and pomegranates sort of flowing out of baskets, beautiful paintings. The colour and the texture and the light made you want to eat them. And then downstairs, this lovely woman gave us her time and attention and allowed us to sample, get this, a wine that only one month beforehand in Austria had won the world's best. It was smooth, it was flavoursome, we couldn't afford it. In fact, even if we could, it wasn't for sale, but we were tasting it. It was the world's best. We bought a cheese platter, we had a glass of wine each, we sat with one another in the glass-walled veranda overlooking the vineyards and the fields and we fell in love again and we thought, you know, this is what life is about. You know, don't you love it when God gives you those moments Um, They don't happen every day. Well, maybe they do for you if you live here. But, um, you know, when they happen, they are gifts, standout moments, moments that you remember and they speak to you of how good life can be. 
The wedding at Cana in Galilee was a moment like that. It's not just that it was a wedding with friends there or that there was good wine. It's what John says at the end of his account, that through what happened there, Jesus revealed his glory and the result was that for the first time, Jesus' disciples as a whole group put their faith in him so that whatever they experienced then was a moment which pointed beyond itself. It was a moment, it was a good moment, but which gave greater meaning to life by pointing to something even greater. Now, during October, we've been seeing what happens when Jesus has met different sorts of people. A foreign woman, a royal official, a disabled larrikin, a religious expert, a variety of different people. And whenever that meeting involves a miracle, that miracle points beyond itself to something greater, as does today's story when Jesus meets an event manager. Like any story, it has a setting. From verses 1 and 2, if you've got your Bibles open, after three days of travelling, Jesus arrives with his disciples and mother at a wedding at Cana. Cana, a small village but only nine kilometres or so from Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth, which means the bride and groom were likely to be family friends. And that may explain why Jesus' mother gets involved and speaks to Jesus about him doing something. Okay, which he needs to do because there is a crisis in the story. Whoops, go back. All stories have a crisis that needs solving. The crisis is in verse 3, and that is that they've run out of wine at the wedding. Now, weddings in those days could last a week. Imagine that. Um, a whole week of celebration. The wine, in case you're wondering, was usually watered down between to about a third and a tenth of what we drink today. And yet at some point through, through the celebration, embarrassment of embarrassments, the wine has run out. Not all the guests realise this, but Jesus' mother does. Perhaps she's a close friend with the hostess, um, the mother of the groom. Perhaps she's on the inner catering circle. What are they going to do? You know, it's the host, it's the groom's responsibility to look after the guests. Hospitality is really highly valued in that culture. Everyone would expect that at such a joyful and significant occasion as a wedding, you wouldn't hold back, right? Now, last January, my eldest daughter got married. We were the, we were the, the people organising things. And now we're in the throes of organising another wedding for this January, for the second daughter. I really hope the third one doesn't get married the January afterwards because I'll be coming to you for a handout. Anyway, um, <laughs> this story's really close to home for me. Okay, so last January, Bronwyn's married on one of those scorching Adelaide days of 44 degrees, right? Now, it would have been, I can tell you, a real big dampener on celebrations if after half an hour into the reception... The bar closed and the waiters stopped serving drinks. I mean, what are you going to do? Let's raise an empty glass to the, the, the bride and groom. It just doesn't work, you know. What if people get thirsty? I'll have some room temperature tepid water to drink, you know, 44 degrees. It would have dampened everything. That wasn't a pun. All right, so without saying to Jesus, do something, Jesus' mother says, do something. She says to him, they have no more wine. 
you know. And we think, well, I mean, what's she expecting him to do? Did she know Jesus hadn't done a miracle yet? But we know that she knew that her son wasn't just her son, he was the son of God. So who knows what she's expecting? What's clear is that, is that she, the mother, was looking to her eldest to get involved and fix it. Now Jesus says to her, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet. Dear woman, you know, I'm pretty sure if any adult son spoke to their mothers like that, they'd be put in place fairly quickly. Obviously, he's reluctant to pull a rabbit out of the hat. Well, interesting. He may be the son of God, but his mother is still his mum. And she won't take no for an answer. And so she loops other people in and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> it's a little window, isn't it, into Jesus' family life and the dynamics there. I've often wondered what it was like for Mary to live with Jesus as your son, knowing that at the same time as being your son, he is also the son of God. Tricky situation. Her first statement, they have no more wine, it's his mother's command to do something. But her next statement, do whatever he tells you, it's not a command. She's deferring to him in a way which looks to him without telling him what to do, but at the same time raises the expectation. Clearly she believes in him, doesn't she? Joseph, her husband, is not around. Most likely he's dead, meaning that for years, perhaps Jesus, oh, sorry, Mary has been looking to her eldest son, Jesus, to provide for her. Couple that with what the angel announced to her 30 years before, he would be great. He would be the son of the Most High God. It's not surprising that she looks to him and believes in him. So we're expectant. So what happens? John focuses our attention Okay, so he zooms in and helps us to see six stone water jars, and he describes these very carefully. Six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, that's 75 to 110 litres. Up there are jars like that that were uncovered in Jerusalem in 1969. Six jars with a combined capacity of around 600 litres. And now he slows the story right down. And you can see the action unfold. Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. The servants fill them to the brim. He tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They draw some out. They take it to the master of the banquet, to the event organiser. Now, why focus our attention on him? Whatever's going to happen involves the jars and him. And we're meant to see something. And you can almost see him raising the glass to his lips. And then his eyebrows kind of lift and his eyes open at the sweet taste of delicious wine on his lips. And as we see his eyebrows raise, ours do too, because we know that water was put into the jars. The servants know that he should have been tasting water. Jesus knows this. His mother knows this. But he doesn't. He doesn't know where it comes from. And so the turning point in the story comes in his words to the groom in verse 10. The crisis was the potential embarrassment to the groom. All that's forgotten when the event manager says with a wink at the slightly inebriated state of the guests, everyone brings out their best wine first and leaves the cheaper wine till later on when the guests are 
or when the, when the guests are now happy and not so picky about the wine quality. But you've done it the other way around. You've kept the best till now. Without knowing it, his words have confirmed that a miracle has taken place. Water has been miraculously turned into wine and not just cask wine, excellent wine. 600 litres of vintage Grange Hermitage. This is empty, by the way. (laughs) I've never tasted Grange, but I wonder if I just put my tongue around the the neck, would that be okay? (laughs) I won't. The best I could do is to smell it. Those who have tasted it have told me that when they taste it, the taste lingers in your mouth for a very long time to let you taste and remember that the world is good. It points you to something better. That's the story, right? Now we ask, it's a lovely story, but what's the point? John says, in the story, Jesus revealed his glory. What glory? This wasn't a miracle done out in in public to wow the crowds, even for the privileged few who knew what was going on. What glory was it showing? Jesus can do party tricks? Is that it? He's a dutiful son? Is that his glory? He's a nice guy who saves a groom from embarrassment? I mean, what, what's his glory? John says that what happened caused his disciples to put their faith in him. Now, having heard the story, would this cause you to put your faith in Jesus? Well, it's puzzling, isn't it? To put your faith in Jesus because of this implies that you're expecting him to do even more. Maybe that's it. They saw this miracle as somehow pointing beyond itself to something they could hope for. That would make sense of Jesus, of sorry, John calling Jesus party trick a miraculous sign. That's different to describing it just as a miracle. If this was just a miracle, a miracle stands by itself. It's an amazing thing, but it doesn't promise anything beyond itself. But John says this was a miraculous sign. This miracle points beyond itself. It's the difference between a sign that says this is a sign, like a sign of a sign, or a sign that says Melbourne, 900 kilometres away. That points somewhere, doesn't it? The disciples knew and saw this miracle was a sign to something else. We think, what? what? What did it point them to? What does it point us to? What did they see and understand that we're missing? Well, one of the great honours that I get uh, in being a minister is that I get to perform weddings. Most weddings, of course, take months to plan, but they happen like that. Sometimes, however, the couple will employ a, uh, a wedding videographer, um, someone who records what happens so that they can play it back later on and then see all the details that they miss on the day. Okay, let's play video review with this wedding scene. What are the details that we miss? When a wedding couple watch the video on the wedding, of course, they see it through different eyes. They don't see it through their eyes. They see it through the eyes of the videographer who'll zoom in on certain details, you know, the nervous smile of the groom as his bride's walking up, the guest, the, the, the tear in the, the parent's eyes, um, the red flush on the bride's cheeks. You know, they'll capture things that the others miss. John, in writing the story, he's like a, a wedding cameraman 
And as we'll replay, he'll zoom in on special details which were there but alert us to what's going on. So in replay, what are the details? There's the setting. John sets the time frame by saying this happened on the third day. The third day. What does that do for you? You might go to Easter, how Jesus died on Good Friday, was raised on the third day. It's just a hint But suddenly there's a connection with Easter. Third day, third day after what? What happened before this? If we go backwards from chapter 2, we go to chapter 1, we see other time markers. Most notably, the opening words of chapter 1, verse 1, where John uh, starts with the words, in the beginning. And that takes us back to the very beginning, the first day of creation, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All right, And the point of all that is saying, John's saying, with the coming of Jesus, God's going to do a new work of creation as big as the first one. But then there's other time markers after that first day. There's another day, verse 19 of chapter 1. People question John the Baptist, asking if he's the Christ. Then the next day, verse 29, John sees Jesus. Then the next day, verse 35, John sees Jesus again. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee. That's day 5. And then at the start of chapter 2, we read on the third day he arrives, so he's travelling on days um, 5, 6 and 7. The wedding's now happening on day 7. Once again, given the opening reference to Genesis, that's evocative because it conjures up what happens on day 7 in creation, which is the goal of creation, and that is rest. Rest. So the setting, the time marker, takes us back to creation and the goal of rest. What else is there? If the setting takes us back to creation, the moment of crisis takes us forward and it does so through Mary, Jesus' mother. Because when it comes out that they've run out of wine, did you notice the way Mary's described? Not as Mary, but as the mother of Jesus. And we think it almost rude when Jesus speaks and addresses her as dear woman. It's an odd detail, isn't it? We wonder, what is it that John the videographer is showing us by this? That Jesus is being rude towards his mother? No. He's helping us to mentally leap forward to the only other moment in John's gospel where Jesus' mother is mentioned. To the only other time when Jesus speaks of her as dear woman. To that moment when Mary stands there with John, who writes this account, and Jesus on the cross looks down at her and addresses her from the cross. The cross. That's what Jesus was talking about. My time has not yet come. Later on in chapter 12, Jesus would realise that his time had come, for the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he spoke of how a kernel of wheat needed to fall down and die if it was going to produce many seeds. He's speaking of the cross. By Jesus' words, that is his moment of glorification. And John drops details in this story to take us there. The setting, the time marker, takes us to creation. The crisis takes us to the cross. And in describing the turning point, John takes us further forward even still. Look at verse 10. At the words of the master of the banquet to the bridegroom, the master says two things. One he gets right, one he gets wrong, and then right without realising it. The thing which he gets right is that the wine 
that has just been served is the best by far. That's what he gets right. But there's something funny in him saying that the bridegroom himself provided for it because he didn't provide it, did he? Jesus did. And so he gets it wrong. Or does he? Because maybe he's more ripe than he realised. Maybe a bridegroom did provide it, not the bridegroom whose wedding it was, who he's talking to, but the other bridegroom who's present there. Just after this episode in John chapter 3, which we looked at last week, John records the words of John the Baptist, who speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom who has now finally come, and of the joy of the bride when she hears the bridegroom's voice. And what John the Baptist is talking about is the great Old Testament promise that when the Christ, the Messiah, comes, he shall come like a victorious king who will at the same time be like a bridegroom to those that he saves. And in calling Jesus the bridegroom, suddenly we're transported to the very last chapters of the Bible, which describe the great final day of Christ as a wedding feast between Christ the bridegroom and all those who he saved as his bride. So you see what the videographer has done. He's taken us to the moment of creation, and he's evoked all those ideas of rest and rich relationship, of enjoyment uh, between God and his people. He's taken us to the cross, although we wonder why. He's taken us to that great final wedding banquet when all the good plans that God has for his people and his son will become a reality. Why does he take us to the cross? The answer comes in that key scene that we've left out in our second run-through, the filling of the water jars. This time as we play the video, we're paying close attention to the detail. We see that John is very specific in how he describes them. Stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. They represent Judaism's way of making us clean. John says they were filled to the brim, signifying that he represents the best that Judaism can do to make us clean. John says that there are six of them. Six, not seven. Seven's the perfect number, which signifies completion. But there are not seven, there are only six, meaning that they fall short of the perfect number, signifying that the method Judaism supplies to make us clean inevitably falls short. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes that incomplete, imperfect, unsuccessful attempt to make us clean. He transforms it not into pure bleach or alcohol that would really cleanse us from within, but into wine, superb wine, meaning that Jesus not only cleanses us in a way that Judaism or religion can never do, he goes further. He brings us into the goal of creation, that rich rest, the wedding banquet. How does he do it? How does he cleanse us? Answer, with the wine of his blood shed on the cross. John says that when Jesus' disciples saw this sign, they put their faith in him. The miracle of water into wine wasn't about the alcohol. It wasn't about saving the party. It was a sign to them that Jesus was the great bridegroom who had been promised. 
the very one sent by God who will bring us into God's rest, to that great wedding banquet when we will taste and we will enjoy all that God has in store for us. And the Grange Hermitage, you know, served up to his guests only a taste, only a taste of the best that is to come. We can fool ourselves into thinking that the life we have now is all there is, that this is the best that we can do. Friends, in comparison, we are sipping on cask wine when God is promising us Grange. Jesus' first miraculous sign wasn't a big public miracle. You have to look closely for the meaning, but it is a taster, and it is a tantalizing taster of the life that Jesus promises those who believe. And it calls for us to put our faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus and for this miracle. And thank you for how you've stretched us in our understanding. But help us to see the sign that it points towards. And help us, likewise with the disciples, to put our faith in Jesus. Amen.